You are late to Jack Charlton's birthday party, you tardy Patricks. He has chosen not to get a a cake for his birthday party, but rather a a giant replica of a, a rich tea biscuit. He's a Calvinist, and he believes that a traditional birthday cake like a Black Forest gâteau would make everybody think about wanking. So instead, we must all eat a giant rich tea biscuit, and to use its its blandness to reflect upon our mortality. And there's no knives at Jack Charlton's birthday party. Instead, for everybody to eat this giant rich tea biscuit, we must all behave like flies and use the collective saliva in our mouths to kind of gently lick and spit on the rich, the giant rich tea biscuit and then everyone together takes little bites out of it. And that's Jack Charlton's birthday party. Which is also a metaphor for the Blind Buy podcast. Welcome. What is the crack, you tremendous cunts? How are you getting on? Did you have a gentle week? Did you have a lovely week? The weather's picking up. Um, In Limerick today it was unseasonably warm. You know, it's February 25. February 25, the 25th of February. And it was warm, which... See, I'm, because of global warming now, I'm kind of doubting myself. It's this new thing, it's this new dystopian attitude towards the weather that nobody predicted in the science fiction novels. Like, I can't now truly embrace and enjoy a lovely sunny day because I don't know, is that just the alarm bells for the environmental apocalypse? Do you know what I mean? It's like I'm out there today, down by Yorty's couch, having a run. And I'm going, fuck it, the first signs of spring, you know, it's it's warm, it's humid, it's, isn't this nice? This is the first warm day that I've experienced in Limerick in about three or four months. Isn't this lovely? And then a voice in the back of my head going, but what if it's global warming? What if it's supposed to be cold? So th- that's a new a new thing in 2019 that I believe will become a trend where you can't truly appreciate the weather because you're wondering was it this hot when I was a child? So anyway, great response to last week's podcast. I fucking loved making last week's podcast. I really enjoyed it. It was a a boiling hot take about culture and society and I was glad to get it out of myself. Um... What have we got going on this week? Uh, before, obviously last week I advertised a few gigs. I have tons of gigs coming up. Live podcasts. Uh, March the... I don't know what date it is at March. It's at the start of March anyway. And it's in Vicar Street. That's sold out. Vicar Street is sold out. However, there are two Vicar Street dates at the start of April. I'm going to say 5th and 6th. Okay, they're not sold out. Please come to them. They're the first one, the fifth, I think, is now almost sold out. There's gigs in Cork. There's a gig in Belfast. Just look up the Blind by Podcast. Or go to last week's podcast where I had the list of gigs in front of me and I read them out. There's podcast gigs coming up. And I wish I was better at promoting them. Um... So, something mad happened in Dublin this week. 
and it's something that really pissed me off, something that infuriated me. There's a place in Dublin called St. Micken's Church, right? And it's this old Protestant church. And what makes St. Micken's unique, first off, it's like a thousand years old. It was a church that was, it was just built like when the Vikings were fucking off out of Dublin. I think it's across the way from Wood Quay. Like across the way from St. Micken's across the river is Wood Quay, which was the where the first kind of Viking settlement in Dublin was. And Dublin was a Viking city. It was founded by the Vikings. In fact, the common phrase that we use, when you, you know, if, if you spend too much on something and you say to somebody, I paid through the nose, you know, I paid through the nose, this was really expensive. That's like a 1,200-year-old expression that has its roots in Dublin. What the Dublin Vikings used to do is they used to tax the native Irish. And if you didn't pay the Viking tax in Dublin 1,200 years ago, they would cut your nose up to your eye and you'd be left with this scar. So the people of Dublin would say, that person with the scar paid through the nose. They paid a lot more instead of just giving the Vikings their money. But anyway, the Vikings... I, I, I don't know, the Normans maybe... The Normans fucked their shit up. So St. Macon's Church, very, very old church in Dublin. And I visit there, and I have been visiting there for over 10 years, because one of Dublin's best-kept secrets, there's an, a crypt at the bottom of St. Macon's Church with loads of bodies on display, and I'm a lover of history. I fucking adore history, as you know from listening to this podcast. And I would visit St. Micken's Church once a year anyway, specifically to go and see. There's the body of... First off, it, it, how do I explain this? There's an 800-year-old mummy on display in the basement of St. Micken's Church. Now, when I say mummy, you're thinking Egyptian mummy. Mummy simply means mummified. Mummified is a word that means... When something dies, the body is somehow preserved. So, 800 years ago, a chap died and was buried in St. Micken's Church. Too big for the coffin, I believe. So, kind of poking out of the coffin. But it's a chap of about six foot four, 800 years ago. And the thing with the crypt at the bottom of St. Micken's Church, there's many theories, but one theory is that a kind of environmental anomaly occurred whereby the walls are made out of limestone. So it created this incredibly, strangely dry environment. So the crypt in St. Mickens, I won't say perfectly preserved, but preserved the body of this man who died 800 years ago and it's on display. Now, it doesn't look as cool as, a, as an Egyptian mummy. Like, you know, it's not wrapped in anything. This is accidental mummification um, as a result of a dry environment. Essentially, like a type of, uh, like a jerky, you know, where the meat, uh, all the moisture is taken out of it so it doesn't fully decompose. So this freaky looking fucking skeleton with kind of brown skin on it, six foot four, is there in St. Mickens and you could go and look at it down in the crypt. And they've always been there on display. 
and some fucking prick went into St. Mickens during the during the week, vandalised the crypt and stole the head of this mummy that has lain there for fucking 800 years. Robbed the fucking head. Some prick in Dublin has got an 800 year old head of this mummy and I find that heartbreaking. I think the St. Mickens mummy is one of the best kept secrets in Dublin. Now the head is missing. Um, like I said, like, you know, why am I talking about a missing head of a fucking mummy on the podcast? Because I'm passionate about it. I'll give you more kind of history around it to just show you how cool and unique it is. Like, first off, there's natural mummification. That's incredibly rare. There's a form of mummification that happens in Limerick, actually. When limestone, like, Limerick has a lot of limestone in the soil. We've got hard water down here, you know, it's hard to... If you're to wash yourself in Limerick, you have to use twice as much water to get the soap um, foamy because there's so much limestone in the water and in the soil and makes shit of our kettles and things like this. But an interesting thing that happens in Limerick is sometimes when bodies decompose in Limerick, the fat from the body, when it decomposes, it leaches into the soil. But the, the fat then mixes with the limestone and forms a type of soap cake. So you get a, a saponification, it's called. These bodies in Limerick buried underneath the ground that are mummified in their own soap. But in Dublin, in St. Mickens, a similar thing happened, but not with skin soap. Just a jerkiness that occurred on this body whose head is now missing. But what also makes this decapitated body interesting, he was a Templar knight, which is rare as fuck. And the Templars, I'll give you... Now, Templars are, are, you know, if you watch the Da Vinci Code, the Templars were present in it, and there's all types of conspiracy theories and whatever surrounding the Templars, but the Templars are interesting cunts. The Templars came about in about the 11th century. So here was the crack. Like, so in the 11th century, Christianity is... About a thousand years old. You know it's a thousand years after the fucking birth of Christ. And Christianity for the first thousand years was like a hippie cult. Do you know? The church was established especially after the fall of Rome. It was actually it was after the fall of Rome that the church started to become quite powerful. But it was for a thousand years a hippie-ish harmless cult. Not a million miles away from Buddhism. You know? It wasn't about power. It was about peace and love. And it was a cool religion. Then what happens is the Crusades. Now the Crusades were kind of a... I don't want to get into who started it, but it was a response to the expansion of Islam. And Jerusalem and the area that we now call Israel, Christ was born around there, right? So that became a very holy site. So Christendom, European Christendom, went and took Jerusalem so Jerusalem was being controlled by Europe essentially this Middle Eastern place being controlled by Europe because it's the birthplace of Christ so what happens in the 11th century if you are a rich person in England in Germany in France in these Christian Western countries if you're a rich person 
you know, being devoting yourself to Christianity is a very in vogue thing to do. This is the early Middle Ages. There's no science. I've no doubt people truly believed in religion. So if you had a bit of money, the most important thing you could do in your life was to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the birthplace of Christ and where Christ was crucified. So a lot of very wealthy people in the 11th century, after the First Crusade, would go on a trip to Jerusalem. But the thing is, because it was the 11th century, there was no... Banks didn't exist, you know. So if you had a lot of money, to go from, we'll say, England to Jerusalem, you had to travel to Jerusalem. This would have taken six months, you know, by caravan, with horses or whatever. You had to bring with you all your valuables, all your slaves, I suppose, your entire household, and everybody had to travel at once. And what would happen is, as the Europeans travelled by foot, making their way to Jerusalem it was very dangerous and bandits would wait on the roads along the way and go look at these stupid British French and German cunts coming over here on foot with all their money we're gonna rob the pricks so pilgrimage pilgrimaging people Christians on pilgrimage were robbed blind and murdered on their way to Jerusalem So this organisation sets itself up called the Knights Templar. And what the Knights Templar were, were a type of, they were monks, devout monks, but they were warrior monks. They were monks that were allowed to kill and murder. And Christianity up to that point had been very peaceful. But some Pope, I can't remember who it was, around the 10th century, changed the rules the rules of Christianity were like you can't kill anyone this is a peaceful religion you can't kill anyone and something happened around a thousand years ago where the rules were changed and they said you can kill someone if they're not a Christian that caused a lot of shit so the Knights Templar were created as these warrior monks who would accompany Christians on a pilgrimage to protect them on their journey to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be robbed and murdered And it was a very, like the coolest thing you could be in the 12th century. The most prestige was to be a Knights Templar. This was just unbelievable. It'd be like being a superstar, a rock star. There was no greater honour. So what happens is a lot of rich young men from wealthy families decide to become Knights Templar. But the thing with being a Knights Templar is... If you look at the symbol of what the Knights Templar were, if you look at their, what would you call it, their insignia, it's it's the insignia is two monks on a horse. Two monks on one horse. And what this did is that it symbolised poverty. It's like the Templar Knights were so poor that they would ride two to a horse because they couldn't even afford two horses. Because Knights at that time, you know, with the whole chivalry shit, Knights had fucking servants, they had big armour, all of this. The Templars were not like that. They were wealthy young men who gave up their riches and became poor warrior monks and like guaranteed entrance to heaven or whatever. But what happens when a young man joins the Templar and he's got a lot of money? He then gives the money to the fucking church. So the church then start to accumulate a fucking massive amount of wealth because all these wealthy young men are giving their money to the church so they, that they can become poor 
warrior templar monks right and the most interesting legacy of the knights templar is they accidentally invented international banking so what would happen is you know 11th century you want to go to jerusalem you're wealthy so you leave england and then you take all your money with you all the way over to jerusalem and the templars go with you and protect you the templars figured out a better way to do this as they got more powerful and became international you templars in france you templars in fucking germany and spain all of this what they would say is because they would have templar centers in every single country they'd say to the rich person in england instead of taking all your valuables with you to jerusalem right here's a better way to do it get all your valuables leave them in the templar center in england then what we'll do is we'll give you a note from our templar center that says you've left three grand's worth of goods with us then you take this note and if you happen to drop by spain we'll say on your way to jerusalem go into the templar center in spain show them this note and the templars in spain will go oh grand all your shits in england here's the equivalent money and they did this all over europe and essentially what they were doing there was inventing modern banking you no longer needed like your valuables with you what you had was a piece of paper that said the valuables existed and could be cashed in in any templar center around the world so banking was invented in the early medieval times because of these templars and they became incredibly wealthy and then because they became wealthy people started to borrow from them and how the templars ended they ended in the 1300s at some point i'm eyeballing this history from memory now by the way they they ended in the 1300s because the king of france borrowed a fuckload of money off the templars and couldn't pay it back so what the king of france did instead of paying off his debt he decided to create a rumor that the templars were actually worshiping the devil and that they were wanking onto crucifixes and doing all this crazy deprived shit so the templars were put on trial and they were hung and murdered and all of this this happened on friday the 13th and this is why friday i don't know what year 13 something this is why friday the 13th is unlucky because it was the day that the king of france accused the templars of wanking on crucifixes and worshiping the devil and worshiping a giant owl called uh baphomet and he hung him and burned them all at the stake and friday the 13th is unlucky since then the templars then they split off and i think they merged into the order of malta who are if you're looking at a gaa match today and you see that the what is it is it the ambulance of saint john or the order of malta they're the direct descendants of the templars now now they're lads who come onto the pitch if someone's injured at a gaa game the town of hospital in limerick is named after the order of malta and the, the knights hospitalier the templars also became the knights hospitalier which were i think they were monks who traveled on the battlefield and, and helped the wounded or something i'm not sure so anyway this fucking knight 
Templar Knights in St. Mickens Church in the basement in Dublin, his head was stolen. Somebody fucking in Dublin knows who stole the head. Give it back. Because it's gone now three or four days. It's perfectly mummified. It's rotting on someone's fireplace. What do you want with a fucking 800 year old head? What do you want with it? Do you know? Give it back. So, hand it into some hipster pub in Stony Batter or hang it off the fucking five lamps. Or if you do know where it is and you want to give it back and you want to anonymously give it back, I don't know, give my give my Twitter page at Rubber Bandits a, a direct message, a private mail. And if you have the head of the Templar Knight, give it back and I'll try and help a way whereby it can be repatriated with St. Mickens Church and you can get away with it. I don't know. Am, am I am I going too far with making that call? I don't know what the grave robbing is. Maybe it's maybe it's an issue for the guards. I don't know, but let's get the head back. St. Mickens was also vandalised in 1996. Vandals went in there, fucked around with 40 corpses, tried to set them on fire, and then robbed the head of a four-month-old child that died in the 1830s and played soccer with it in the graveyard. And, like, I'm not superstitious, but to the person who stole the, the Templar's head this week, if you're listening, you've stolen the head, right, of a person who belonged to an organization that were condemned by the church for worshipping Satan and a giant owl and, you know, all this deep, shadowy, hidden fucking knowledge, like dark, dark shit. And that's the head that you have. So, I'm not superstitious, but if you are superstitious, you are cursed as fuck. That's pure cursed territory, like, to be going around with that head. So, I would imagine, repatriate that head, give it back to St. Mickens. I wouldn't like to have that fucking up on my mantelpiece, and I'm not even superstitious. You pricks. Okay, that was an, an, an unsolicited 20-minute fucking rant that I did. I, I thought I was going to wrap up the Templar thing in about five minutes, but it did take 20 minutes, and it's not even the topic of the podcast this week. So before we do get on to this, this week's topic, um, we'll pause for some adverts. The ocarina is still missing, so we're going to have another banjo pause. Been getting a lot of good feedback for the banjo pause. A lot of people feel that the the banjo is a welcome musical interlude for the podcast, and that it's a nice change to the ocarina. So here's the banjo pause. You might hear an advert. If not, you'll just hear the banjo, and hopefully this time I won't get any any of the notes wrong. It's a choir scale. Like I I have to play the banjo to the piano that's in the background, and it just happens to be a very a strange shape for my fingers to do millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labeling my emotions identifying my emotions I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online if online therapy is something you might be interested in give better help a try it's entirely online it's convenient flexible and it's suited to your schedule all you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. Bollocks. There you go, that's the banjo pause. One wrong note this week. This podcast is sponsored by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Um, you know, you can become a patron of this podcast for the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. If you like the podcast and you'd like to buy me a pint or a cup of coffee, you can do it once a month. Go to patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. And please, yeah, give me a few quid. But if you can't afford it, you don't have to. It's a suggested donation. It's a model that works on soundness and everyone gets the same podcast, you know. Um... As well, yeah, it's it's because too, I just don't get sponsors or advertisers on the podcast. And I put out a big plea there on Twitter during the week, you know. Because sometimes, like I'm happy with the Patreon, but sometimes I just, I get pissed off that advertisers are at least not even coming to the podcast. It, it just annoys me because it's so silly. It's really silly. It's like... There's a million listeners to this. Like, it, this podcast has more listeners than a lot of the biggest radio shows on Irish radio. And I was talking to Acast. Acast are the people who would get me advertisers. And they're continually trying to chase Irish companies saying, here's the figures, you know, Blind Boy's got a lot of listeners, do you want to advertise? And a lot of them just still have cold feet. Some of it, most of it is because I curse all the time. 
which is ridiculous. It's like, it's on the internet, it's a podcast. You're all adults, you don't mind the cursing. It's this really silly attitude. The other thing is, they're kind of scared of the mental health aspect. That bit I can understand. I've, I've more understanding for that bit. The Carson bit? Fuck you. Grow up. Jesus Christ, we're all adults. They're just words. And I think as well, just a lot of advertisers in Ireland, the word podcast just sounds too new and strange to them, so they don't want to... You're like, it's like the radio, but it's on the internet. They just don't want to take that risk. It's The territory is too new. And... I just, as well, I was mentioning a couple of weeks back, the Patreon is a fantastic model. It's brilliant. It pays my fucking bills. I love it. I have a guaranteed source of income. But I don't like having all my eggs in one basket. Like Patreon recently, the shareholders of Patreon, the company, were complaining that Patreon isn't making enough money for them, which means Patreon are now going to have to make some some changes. And whenever that happens with... An online company. Whenever shareholders start complaining. Usually the platform goes to shit. Like Facebook started going to shit. When it became focused towards its shareholders. You know. So. I would at least like the option. Of knowing if advertisers are willing to fucking sponsor or advertise the podcast. Even just to turn them down. Because I have had one or two companies come to the podcast. And I've just said no. No. Because I don't agree with their ethics. But surely there has to be some fucking companies out there who are... I agree with their ethics and I'm comfortable letting them advertise on this. So if you are a company and you're interested... You can email jennifer.dollard at acast.com. And Jennifer is... She now... She's only got after getting the job in the past two weeks. But she manages all of the... Acast in Ireland because Acast used to be English based but I think they're expanding so if you're a company give her a fucking email and sponsor the podcast and let me say fuck and don't try and interfere with my content God bless you so what is this week's podcast about this week's podcast is going to be a music podcast now it won't be we've done a few music podcasts. I fucking love doing the music podcast, especially the history of music ones. We've done a few. Um, there was one on Northern Soul. Uh, there's two podcasts on the history of disco and house music. There's a history of hip-hop podcast. There was that one a couple of weeks ago about drum machines and the influence of Japan. And music podcasts are, like, my favourite ones to do, especially the history of music and how culture and politics influence how music sounds there's going to be more this one is a music podcast but it's not a really in-depth look at a genre instead i want to look at just i'm going to give you a couple of examples of just weird origin stories for songs stuff that just they're, they're weird facts i've come across that aren't very well known, that when I say them to you, you'd go, fuck off, you're talking out of your arse. The type of fact that would make you immediately run to Google, because I have to be lying, because it's so ridiculous. So, that's what I want to focus this week's podcast on, and 
this this takes a very crazy turn. As I get through this, it a, a, a mad thing fucking happens. All right, even madder than when the Tomcat interrupted the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So anyway, I'm gonna play you a little piece of audio. Um, a fantastic song that you'll definitely know. Absolute fucking banger. Of course you know it. That's Blame It On The Buggy by The Jackson 5. 1978. Uh, fucking classic, game-changing, a disco song. Phenomenal songwriting. Phenomenal pop songwriting. That song is, is perfection. It's... You don't... You know, you can't not love that. A newborn baby will love that. A, someone 90 years of age will love that. That is perfect fucking pop. It's amazing. And the reason I'm I'm playing that song and the reason it's relevant to this podcast is like I've listened to that song for years. I've that's one of those songs that I would have as what you'd call a reference track. When I'm producing music, you want to have tracks that you consider perfection in terms of how they're produced or mixed or written and when you're learning the craft of production that would be one example of a song that I would play as a reference against something that I'm making we'll say when I was producing Horse Outside Blame It On The Buggy would be a song that I would switch over to and I would play Horse Outside alongside it and see you know, is is my song jumping out of the speakers the way that song is? And if it's not, you go back and change it until it is, because that song is perfection. So, for years and years and years, I was going, fuck me, that's incredible. And what always struck me as well, with it being amazing, is I used to have that on CD. And when I'd have it on CD, often what I would do in the olden days of having, like, an album in your hand you go to the liner notes and I'd go to the liner notes of the song when I'm listening to it because I want to be like, okay, who played saxophone? Who was the drummer? Who produced it? Who wrote it? You'd find all this shit in the liner notes of the song. And what used to strike me was it says song written by Michael Jackson. And that always took me back because I was like, fuck me, that, that was the Jackson 5. So Michael must have been 14 and he wrote blame it on the buggy a 14 year old wrote that song that is what a fucking genius do you know wow and and yes it is it is factually correct that this song was written by michael jackson this is a fact so now listen to this song so blame it on the buggy michael jackson that i just played you there 1978 listen to this song here that was written in 1977. 
So there you have it, 1977, Blame It on the Boogie, written by Michael Jackson. What if I told you it was written by a different Michael Jackson? Here's the mad thing. Michael Jackson, like the famous massive Michael Jackson from America, he didn't write Blame It on the Boogie, an English lad called Michael Jackson wrote Blame It on the Boogie and he wrote it in 1977 and then the Jackson 5 released it and it's a kind of a a really weird strange thing like I said you know if you say that to someone I like I didn't fucking believe it when I first heard it because it's too insane it's too weird it's too nuts but I ended up looking into it further and it's like yes an English lad called Michael Jackson wrote Blame It On The Buggy. I found a, a little recording of him talking about it, how he wrote it. Uh, um, when we received this album, it says all songs written by the Jacksons. <laughs> Which is not um, untrue, because we're called Jackson as well, of course, but they're the sort of things that do hurt your pride a little bit. And my brother Dave forgot this sort of look on his face that he gets when he has his moments of genius and, 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 and starts sort of pushing his glasses like that. I mean, he's singing a bad boogie, a bad, bad boogie, a bad boogie, a bad... And they were just singing bad, bad boogie. And he's singing bad boogie, and I'm saying, don't blame it on the sunshine, don't blame it on the moonlight, don't blame it on the good times, blame it on the boogie. Blame it, blame it. We've got this blame it thing and the bad boogies going along and quirky little lyrics were appearing. And Dave was doing one verse, I was doing another and we are changing things around. But it just slotted in very, very quickly, the whole thing. So how about that for Mad? Um, yeah, so Blame It On The Boogie was written by a different Michael Jackson. And they were from the north of England. And for me, what makes it interesting, you know, it ties in with the the Northern Soul thing. English Michael Jackson grew up listening to Northern Soul. He was into soul music. He then graduated towards disco as a songwriter and ended up writing Blame It On The Boogie. And how it turned into a Michael Jackson song, an American Michael Jackson song, a Jackson 5 song, it's a little bit dodgy in a way in that... So when English Michael Jackson wrote and recorded the song... There's this conference called Maidem that happens in France and it's like a trade conference for musicians, for music management producers. So the track before it was released, English Michael Jackson's Blame It On The Boogie before it was released commercially, was being played at this Maidem music conference where you'd hear music before it's released and it was like the hit of the conference in 1977. Everyone was playing it over and over again. But Joe Jackson, who was the Jackson 5's father and manager, happens to be at this conference. He hears this disco track and is like, fuck me. That's the song. That's the song that my sons need to be fucking 
performing as their next single. So Joe Jackson takes out a recorder out of his pocket and records this song clandestinely. And then, because you don't you don't really have control over who covers your song, if someone wants to cover your song, they can do that. They're entitled to do it, so long as they credit you as the writer. So the Jackson 5 then release this song but release it in competition with the original uh, version and they're in the charts at the exact same time and it became known in the British press as the Battle of the Boogie where it was like which is your favourite one and of course fucking you know Michael American Michael Jackson the Jackson 5's version is the one that we, we remember but because it's the, the writing credit was Michael Jackson the British press at the time they thought that you know American Michael Jackson was the one who wrote it but British Michael Jackson wasn't fucked over he received his royalties for writing the song but it's just one of those ones it's it's nuts it's strange it's weird and which song is better the Jackson 5 version you know the original British version is an incredibly well-written pop song, really catchy, but would it have survived in the lexicon of pop? I don't know, I don't think so. The Jackson 5 took that song and through what you'd call in the industry X-Factor, through American Michael Jackson's X-Factor, through his incredible performance, the timbre of his voice the soul and funk in American Michael Jackson's voice it took the song to another level on top of the production the production is brighter it's a little bit faster I think it's in the same key it might be in a key up I'm not sure I need to go back and check but the Jackson 5 version is that's a stone cold classic that has stood the test of time that sounds fresh today the British one it lacks soul. It just it lacks that extra thing, the X factor. It lacks the intangible. I don't know what you'd call it. It's 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 that thing in the music industry. Like I said, it's called the X factor, but it's that thing that a piece of art has that you can't name. It's just there. It's almost spiritual. Like when I walk into a, a gallery, if I'm in London and I walk into the National Portrait Gallery or another gallery. When I walk into a room, like you're talking about hundreds of paintings, but when there's a painting there by one of the true greats, like Renoir or Caravaggio or Gauguin, I just know, I I know I'm in the presence of, and it's surrounded by paintings that are technically fucking brilliant, but when you're in the presence of the painting of a master, it glows with an extra level of life that you can't you can't put your finger on it you can't repeat it you can't copy it that is is true art has an extra spirit to it that can't be pinned down and that's the difference between English Michael Jackson's version and the Jackson 5 the Jackson 5 has got an intangible soul of brilliance that you could analyse it all day long and you wouldn't pin it down whereas I can analyse the English version and I can know this is a good song because I it, it's the catchy melody, the chords that are used. You know what I mean? You can't do that when it comes to X Factor. That's a different vibe and it's rare. And 
American Michael Jackson had it in fucking droves. So here's the part of the podcast that is going to go a bit strange and a bit odd and a bit unpredictable. What got me thinking about this topic for this week's podcast and what got me thinking about the Mick Jackson because uh, because English Michael Jackson went under the name Mick Jackson sometimes but what got me talking thinking about that specific example in music I was on Twitter during the week and I tweeted out what I was interested I was interested in in like s- myths about celebrity certain stories that we hear about celebrities that we don't know if they're true or not and stories that you hear that you want to believe um and what i've started doing with friends of mine is i've started making up stories that are deliberate lies but i but people believe them because we want to believe them so what i tweeted out is that as an experiment i've been telling people that the actor who played jesse pinkman in breaking bad also played stan in the eminem video and found and i found that most people will believe that it's true because it's the type of fact that we want to believe Okay, so I've been telling people that, that Jesse Pinkman was actually Stan in the Eminem video. Most people go, wow, I didn't know that. You Google it and you find out that I'm talking out of my hole. But when I was growing up, there was all these types of stories. And before you could easily Google things, you just kind of believed them. One of them was uh, Marilyn Manson was actually, as a child, was the nerdy young fella in the Wonder Years. That that was Marilyn Manson as a child. And you didn't have Google at hand, so you just believed it. Or that showed different strokes that used to be on in, in the... It was from the 70s, but it used to get rerun on television when I was a young fella. So there was a rumour that Willis from Different Strokes ended up doing animal porn and a chicken died after he stuck his head up his arse. I believed that for years. I believed that Prince got a rib removed so he could suck his own dick. Do you know, these urban myths flew around the place, and when you didn't have the internet... You believed them because you wanted to. And then... You know, I started giving other examples of... Shit that you could make up that you want to believe. Said Pierce Brosnan is the reason that packaged salad said, says wash before use. Because he got salmonella from lettuce as a child and made a successful claim in court. Bullshit. Said that Van Morrison submitted a script for an episode of Mr Bean and it was broadcast and credited to a pseudonym. Bullshit not true but then I said here's a true one and this is an urban myth I don't know what you call it an urban myth it's a rumour that has been going around for a long time in Ireland and there's an an element of truth to it but this version that I tweeted anyway I said this here's a true one Robbie Williams went on the lash in Dublin in 1996 he ended up at a house party the lad whose house party it was had written Angels. He played it on acoustic at the party and Robbie gave him five grand to sign away all rights to it. So that's a story that gets flung around that in 1996, Robbie Williams, you know, famous international superstar, one of them, I think, I think he's the most, is he the most successful British solo artist of all time? I think he might be. He's the most successful solo artist in Latin America who isn't Latin American Robbie Williams is a superstar he's massive he he was throughout the late 90s and the 2000s he was a towering behemoth of success huge um, and a story goes around that when Robbie 
quit the band Take That that he went on the lash he went on a bender and this was very much uh, you know the papers were following this at the time Robbie went off the rails he would have been about 25 maybe and he went off the rails because under Take That who were a clean cut boy band you know they weren't allowed to have girlfriends they weren't allowed to be seen out drinking they had to have a very clean image for the pop industry so when Robbie left Take That he was like well fuck this I want to go out and do a lot of coke and I want to drink and I don't know if this is true but I think once he even held he held a preemptive press conference this could be another urban legend but he held a preemptive press conference where he just got all the press around and says how are you getting on lads last night I drank loads and had sex with loads of girls and did a lot of coke just letting you know and he told the press before they could even report it as a scandal um, I'd have to check that one again I think I might have heard that in the pub but anyway story goes Robbie went to Dublin in 1996 to go on an absolute bender this is a fact this did happen and he ended up becoming pals with a lad called Ray Heffernan and Ray is from Dublin and he's a singer songwriter and the story goes is that Robbie Williams' biggest song the song that really got everyone when Robbie quit take that no one thought he was gonna have a solo career everyone thought it'd be Gary Barlow if anyone or maybe Mark Mark Almond but no one thought Robbie was gonna be the one with a solo career and then he comes out with this song Angels which is it's an anthem you know it's 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 overplayed on the radio and because of that it's very hard to listen to the song and truly appreciate it but you know, if you take all that away, it's like ABBA, you know what I mean? We listen to ABBA songs and we've heard them so many times, you think they're shit, but it's like they're not, they're fucking genius. ABBA are incredible. Angels is an incredible pop song. It's 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 brilliant. And that's why it's an anthem. But it's overplayed, so it's hard to it give it the proper cultural respect it deserves. And when Robbie released Angels, that changed the game. Everybody who doubted him had to go, well fuck here we go, here's Robbie Williams, and he co-wrote the song, holy fuck, he's got talent, we all doubted him, and Robbie became massive, and Angels was the breakthrough moment, but, the myth goes, that, Angels was actually written by, an unknown songwriter from Dublin, called Ray Heffernan, who ended up, on the lash with Robbie, and that, the version I've heard over and over again, they were at a house party, Ray played Angels that he had written. Robbie says, that's amazing. Here's a bunch of cash. And then kind of ran off with the song. So I tweeted that. I tweeted it. And this is where the fucking mad thing happens. So earlier on today, I get a phone call. And I look at the phone and it says Los Angeles. So I pick it up and going, fuck me, who's ringing me from Los Angeles? And I pick up the phone and an English accent. Hi, blind boy, this is Robbie Williams. And he sounded kind of sad and upset. So I'm like freaking out because like I'm, I'm there in, in my kitchen in Limerick and I'm looking out the kitchen window and at the back of my my garden, like I've got my, my two little stray cats, there's a few stray cats and then at the back of my garden, behind the wall, is, is a park. 
So I'm staring at a horse. And, you know, yes, there is actually a horse outside my gaff. But now here's the thing. In Limerick, there's horses everywhere. This is the weird thing about Limerick for anyone listening who, especially if you're outside the country, if you're a Yank. In Limerick, we, we have horses the way other cities have, like, stray dogs. So behind my gaff, there's one or two horses that... Just the, the local young lads look after them. Now, some horses in Limerick aren't looked after and are neglected, but others are looked after. The ones behind my house are looked after, and I often throw them carrots and whatever. So anyway, I'm staring at the horse... And I've Robbie Williams on the fucking phone to me. I don't know how he got my number. I don't even believe it's him. I'm just like, okay, this is odd. This is very fucking strange. It turns out Robbie is a fan of the Rubber Bandits, a fan of the podcast. And he saw the tweet on Twitter where I basically said there was a house party in Dublin. And Robbie kind of stole the song and paid off Ray Heffernan. And Robbie was very upset and hurt. Now, I'm still kind of taken aback by it, not fully believing I'm on the phone to fucking Robbie. Robbie, the superstar Williams, in my kitchen staring at a horse. I can't fathom it, but after about a couple of minutes, that shock dissipates. And now I'm just simply talking to... And an English lad called Robbie who seems incredibly sound and nice and he was absolutely lovely and we spoke for about 40 minutes about several different things but mainly what Robbie wanted to clear up was the version that gets told about that story isn't entirely true specifically the version that I tweeted is not true and Robbie gets quite hurt over it because he didn't want me he was ringing me because he's a fan of the bandits and didn't want me thinking that he was a nasty person who steals songs so it's it's a weird situation there's there's two sides of the story there's Ray Heffernan's side of the story and there's Robbie's side of the story and there's no way for any of us really to know the full truth it it comes down to who you believe um if you want to hear ray heffernan's full version of what happened in in ray's own words of of how how did this all happen it did ray heffernan write angels you can go on to google you look up uh the irish songwriters podcast the Anatomy of Angels. Look that into Google and you've got Ray Heffernan talking for an hour. His side of the story. So, what Ray's end of the story is, is yes, he met Robbie Williams in Dublin in 96. They ended up kicking it off, becoming good pals and really having a kind of an intense time. Robbie confirmed this on the phone at me too. They are on an incredible lash of drink and drugs. Okay, both of their stories say that. They're absolutely off their fucking tits. Then, you know, Ray starts going, well, I'm a songwriter, and Robbie goes, fuck me, well, I'm looking for songs, I'm, I'm writing songs too. So they book a studio in Temple Bar and just end up jamming and recording some stuff. Now, this is where it gets kind of hazy. 
because there's drugs involved, uh, there's drink involved, all of this. Ray Heffernan maintains that Ray Ray had a girlfriend and the girlfriend had a miscarriage and Ray's way of, of dealing with the miscarriage was that the child was now an angel. It's an Irish thing, you know, when the child dies, the child becomes an angel and Ray is, is loving an angel instead. And Ray maintains that he wrote that lyric and he brought that lyric to the project and him and Robbie sat, sat down and that's Ray's thing. Robbie maintains that that isn't the case, that Robbie wrote the lyrics in his garden and also took some of the lyric, lyrics from a poem that his sister had written. And it's, it's two different sides of the same story and there's no way for us to know. There's no way for us to know. Okay, it was a long time ago. There was a lot of drink and drugs involved. Um, Ray feels that kind of what happened too as well. So th- they go on the lash, and then they ended up. I don't know that they have a father out. Robbie left anyway for England, and Ray heads on over to England to follow Robbie, and arrives at his hall door and knocks on it. Now, Ray has said in the podcast thing where he spoke about his story, he he felt that he was on a type of spiritual journey. He was also battling addiction issues at the time. So he arrives at Robbie's door. Ray as well is is annoyed. Ray doesn't like the story either because he feels that he's been kind of defined by, you know, the guy in in Dublin who actually wrote Angels. Ray doesn't like that because Ray's a singer-songwriter and he's a, he's a brilliant singer-songwriter. I've listened to his stuff. He's an incredibly talented man. Um, what we do know is that Ray was paid seven and a half grand sterling by Robbie Williams. Um, Ray maintains that this was money for, you know, to essentially buy the song. Robbie kind of maintains that this was just kind of money for Ray to just go away, kind of, you know. Um, Ray feels that the story is unfinished. He, as to quote Ray in his podcast, he says, I was raised to believe to accept a deal, you shake on a deal, and that's the deal. So for Ray, it's like, okay, I, I signed away whatever could have been mine. That's what Ray maintains on his podcast. Um. Ray does feel that it's it's unfinished and he'd like the opportunity to sit down and write another song with Robbie and give the money to Cherry. That's what Ray said on his podcast. Um, the money side of things from, from Robbie's point of view is there there was no way to take this to court. You, you can't go to court. It's he said, she said. You're talking about two lads on the utter lash. And it comes down to Ray saying that he wrote, a, you know, a core central lyric that was the theme of the song and it comes from his personal experience. And you've got Robbie saying, no, this was mine. I took it from lyrics I'd written myself and a poem my sister wrote. It's utterly unprovable in court. So it's not the type of thing that you take the court. So the money that Robbie gave him was like an out-of-court settlement to just kind of let it go. Here's seven and a half grand. Ray said, you know, at the time Ray was, um, 
in rehab, I believe, for issues he was having with addiction. This is, Again, this is what he said in, in his own podcast. So Ray took the seven and a half grand to pay for that. And I don't know. It's I don't want to cast an opinion either way. What I would I just, just want to say is that there's two different stories out there. And you have two people maintaining, agreeing on 90% of it, but a core thing they both disagree with. Um, what I will say is before Robbie w- rang me on the phone, what I 100% believed was the version of the story that this is a song from a lad in Dublin and Robbie nicked it because that's the most interesting version. That's 9-11 was an inside job. That's a conspiracy theory. That's a really interesting fact that makes you go wow that is so interesting I want to believe that and that's what this podcast would have been about I would have completely ran with that had I not gotten a phone call one thing I'll say regarding like Robbie seemed incredibly sincere he didn't know I was going to do a podcast on it he simply rang me up because he's a fan of the bandits or a fan of the podcast and didn't want me thinking that he was nasty so like his incentive for ringing me up there is is kind of it, it's personal and, and pure I suppose and I asked I asked Robbie's permission as well I said look can I tell people that you rang me up because this is too fucking nuts so he said yeah work away so all I'm going to say to you is, is you can make your own mind up Robbie spoke to me, he gave me his side of the story um, Ray's side of the story is there online you Look it up The Irish Songwriters Podcast The Anatomy of Angels um, It's just nuts Madness It's like that The time fucking Conor McGregor mailed me on Twitter Fucking telling me to stop talking shit about him Just weird, bizarre shit um, then of course I get off the phone my ma had been over earlier and I rang my ma and I said Robbie Williams is after ringing me my ma then doesn't believe me she gets it into her head that uh, she says no that's someone playing a trick on you that's uh, Oliver Callan she thought it was Oliver Callan the, the Irish comedian who's incredible at doing impressions she got it into her head that Oliver Callan was ringing me as a form of sabotage to make a fool out of me and I was like calm down ma so it's just one of these things. Ray accepts that a deal was made. Um, it comes down to whose side of the story that you, you truly believe, you know. And it's it's messy as fuck. It's messy as fuck. You're talking about 1996 in the middle of a drink and drug binge. And who who fucking... You know, R- Robbie says it was it was his version, and then he took it to his songwriting partner Guy Chambers, and that then turned into what we now know as as the song Angels. That's hundred percent. We do know that. I'm gonna leave it with G. I don't want to cast dispersions either way, and it's it's an interesting thing because <clears throat> the way songwriting has changed over the years, like. Nowadays, the way songs are written, like, after 
1996, that's when like real money was being made in the music industry from songwriting and radio plays and CD sales. There was real money there. Since the early 2000s, the, the money end has disappeared out of the music industry. It's Unless you're massive, you're not making money from plays, you know? Like, we get millions of plays on Spotify or YouTube. You don't really make a lot of money from it, you know? And you see now, it's it's hard to know today, with music being re- released today, are artists actually writing their own songs? You go to... I'm not going to name names, but... Anything that's in the charts now, anything that's on the Billboard 100 or a really popular song by popular singers, if you look up the songwriting credits, you don't get a situation anymore. Like in the 60s, you would have a pop singer would sing a song and it's quite clear that they did not write the song. They're merely just performing it and the songwriter's names are there and the pop singer is performing the song. And this was grand in the 60s and 70s because there was so much money to be made. Like the way royalties break down is that there's publishing. Now that's the most lucrative. Publishing is if you actually wrote the song. And then there's performance and mechanical royalties. And that's a smaller portion of the pie. But that's what you get if you perform the song. So in the 60s you'd often find that like... You know, usually like someone like Bob Dylan would write a song... And you could have five or six cover versions of a Bob Dylan song in the charts because the people doing the cover versions, like Dylan, yes, is cashing in on the the publishing money, the big chunk of it, but so many copies are being bought that the person doing the cover version, the mechanical royalties are enough to make them wealthy. That's not the case anymore. There's There's so little money being made now that if your name is not on a record as a songwriter, you are not earning money. Not today. Forget about it. Mechanical royalties are... We're talking about a small percentage of very little money. Um, So larger artists now... What they started doing since about 2003... The artist will make sure that they are... Contributing to the songwriting somehow. And this mightn't necessarily even be in a, in a, in a hugely creative or constructive way they might simply make sure that they're present in the room while the song is being written and contribute two or three words. You know, songwriting is a very specific skill and it's it's a unique gift. You can't learn songwriting. You can learn how to play instruments. Uh, you can learn how to perform. But when it comes to songwriting, that that ability to create a song from nothing from your imagination that's that's a unique and rare talent and a lot of the artists today their names are on the songwriting credits but you don't know you know did they actually meaningfully help write this song or are they business savvy and they just made sure they were present in the room and they maybe contributed a couple of top line melodies or a couple of words and now their names are on the songwriting credits so they can earn from the publishing and you see that across the board now nobody no big artist nowadays is simply saying oh someone else wrote this song they're getting stuck into the songwriting because the pool of money is disappearing but one thing that Robbie did say to me he's incredibly proud of Angels 
that for him, he said he's written many, many songs since, but for him, Angels is the most important thing and the thing that he's most proud of. So for him and his legacy, I guess, he really wants people to know that Angels is his song. I leave it I leave it up to you because I don't want to take any sides in this. I don't want it to get messy like that. You can listen to both sides and you can make your own your own minds up. So that was a that was a mad podcast. There wasn't really any hot takes. I suppose there was. It they just weren't my hot takes. I was I was farming other hot takes. Um quite a diverse podcast. I did enjoy making it. I hope you enjoyed it. I think yeah, it's only it's I felt like I covered an awful lot in sixty five minutes. I was very enthused about this week's podcast, so I, I spoke quite fast. God bless. Have a have a good time and come to some of my live podcasts if they're in your town. There's loads of them and I'm going to get killed for not having the list in front of me and reading them out this week because I'm shit at promoting myself. Okay, Yart, I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,